Today's swap number is 89. That's the number of days contract admin chair Seth Kornblin was on strike when he was with his former carrier, ComAir. With the strike authorization vote coming up and the strike prep booklet having been mailed to Holmes, we felt that the time is right to sit down and talk with him about what that time in life was like, what were some of the things he'd do differently, and what he feels is important about the upcoming vote. I'm Amy Robinson. And I'm Mike Panabianco, taking over hosting duties today for Kurt. And here's our interview with Seth. So, Seth, you haven't been on the podcast for a while. So, for our listeners, go ahead and give them an update on what your current role is. So I'm the chair of uh, the contract admin department here at SWAPA, and I've been uh, back in contract admin since 2017. And what is your current, like, what is the role of contract admin for anybody who doesn't know? So contract admin's tasked with uh, making sure the company is compliant with the contract. We also uh, educate our membership on contractual provisions, and we also assist with uh, disciplinary hearings that our pilots might find themselves uh, party to. As we said in the intro, uh, we're here to talk about the Comair strike. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. When was the Comair? So the Comair strike started at the end of the end of March 2001, lasted for 89 days where I was a line captain. Before the strike, did you have a strike authorization vote? We did, and uh, the turnout was amazing. As I recall, the participation rate was over 99%, and the, the only people that voted no uh, was just six people, not 6%. But as I recall, it was six pilots uh, out of the entire pilot group. If my memory serves me right, I think at that time it was around 1,500, give or take. So that's a pretty pretty low turnout of no voters. Extremely low. A lot of our membership is watching this process play out, and it's the first time for many of them. I mean, we were in mediation 2015, 2016, but I think in the previous one of the previous podcasts, uh, the last two, we talked about 33% of our members weren't even here for that trip through mediation. Talk to us a little bit about the lead up to that strike. So um, as I recall, I think we were in negotiations for about two and a half years. Um, I wasn't actively involved in the negotiations myself, but that's that's my recollection from the line pilot's perspective. And uh, we'd gotten released to self-help and I was volunteering at the uh, Alpa Strike Center at the time. So what really amazed us about the onset of the strike um, was the, the developments in the last few hours prior to it. Around that time, other airlines uh, were getting released uh, to self-help as well. And the trend was that they would get released to self-help. And then on the very last day of the deadline until the strike, usually a tentative agreement would come forward. And our negotiating teams from both the company side and the union side uh, were uh, still meeting in Washington, D.C., on the last day leading up to the strike. And the company team had indicated they were going to dinner and were going to come back. And I was the one sitting at the computer at the strike center tracking our fleet. And I noticed the private jet that the management team had taken to negotiations uh, departing Washington, D.C., heading back to our domicile. They had indicated in the room that they were just going to dinner. But in actuality, they left and uh, got on the airplane and abandoned negotiations with, I think it was about six hours remaining until the deadline. And 
so the actual onset of it was was really more of a lockout because the company then while that airplane was en route carrying the management uh, team members they canceled all the flights and uh, basically had all our crews ferry airplanes back to our maintenance bases that night it didn't happen in a vacuum what was it like in the information phase leading up to that night i think uh, alpa had done a good job uh, educating the membership explaining the nuts and bolts of how the process works um, all the way leading up to it, you know, leading up to the uh, the release for self-help, the fact that we couldn't just strike until we were actually released by the National Mediation Board, the, the possibility that a presidential emergency board could be convened and and stop the onset of the strike. And actually, the, the background there uh, at the time, the Delta Pilot Group had also been going through negotiations. And actually, the president at the time had come out uh, in advance and said he would preempt any kind of strike by the Delta pilots. And so that kind of made everyone in the, in the industry nervous at the time because really it was undercutting uh, the bargaining power we felt of the pilot groups. And uh, so that was kind of the context. And, uh, you know, I, I think Alpa did a really good job and we were really well prepared. Um, we were actually uh, at the strike center. We had already lined up train schedules, bus schedules, rental car availability. We were prepared to bring the entire pilot cadre home. We really thought we were going to have pilots stranded all over the place potentially. But uh, of course, that was not our hope. You know, our hope was that we would reach an agreement prior to the deadline. And our team, the union team, was ready, was there in Washington, D.C. to do that. And it, it caught everyone by surprise when the company team left. When the strike started, talk about some of the concerns and the fears that you personally had and also what the ones that people you spoke to had? Well, nobody wants to go on strike. I mean, of course, you know, everyone's got uh, people that are depending on them, uh, family, uh, dependents, other loved ones. So nobody wants to go on strike. And uh, of course, there was the fear of loss of income. You know, how long would it last? You know, if we struck, would the airline survive? Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but on the other hand, that negotiation uh, was really ugly. In fact, the company had taken 13 hostages during the negotiating process. And when I say hostages, I mean they fired uh, 13 pilots during the negotiation process, uh, alleging that those particular pilots were involved in uh, improper work actions, unauthorized work actions. So uh, we were we were actually we had some mixed emotions because we we felt that going on strike was the opportunity to bring those 13 pilots back. Um, so there was a rally cry to, to, to basically free our hostages, if you will. Um, but, uh, but no, there was a lot, there was fear. Um, what's going to happen? Nobody had been through that. I mean, I don't think there had been a strike at the time. Uh, I think Eastern might've been the, the last significant strike prior to that, if I recall correctly. So you said something interesting, and I think that's something that some of our pilots are, are wondering the member, you know, we swap has come out and told the membership, uh, don't make unnecessary enemies. Uh, don't do don't do things that are going to you know bring negative attention to yourself or to our, our pilot group. What are some of the things that you, when you mentioned hostages, what were some of the things that those pilots were accused of by management that that led to those terminations? Those all were surrounding allegations of quote unquote improper write ups, which is still. Uh, still a bitter pill for me to swallow to this day uh, because uh, Christmas Eve, gosh, uh, during one of the years leading up uh, to the strike during uh, the active negotiations, 
uh, all of us at that company were served with restraining orders, uh, basically uh, <laughs> threatening a $25,000 fine per pilot for any quote-unquote improper write-up and uh, $100,000 to the union at the time. So they were really, it, things were really ugly. They really rattled our cage pretty hard. I think that's a very important point to make is when we say do no harm, we're not at that point in our negotiation, but that's something that I think they needed to hear. Yeah, that was really, really uh, a difficult time because there was a lot of pressure on us pilots to not write things up because we were seeing our friends get canned. Um, and so that was a difficult thing. I mean, you need, you still need to do your job. And so, yeah, and every time I called in a maintenance write-up, they started doing a, uh, they implemented a program where you had to give your employee number every time you called in over the radio for maintenance so they could enter into a database number of write-ups per pilot. So they were actively targeting. The other, the other allegation uh, that led to the terminations of at least one pilot or uh, one or two, I think, it's been a long time, uh, allegations of excessively slow taxiing. Oh, wow, that you can be written up for excessively slow taxi. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so crazy. they were really going out of their way to target uh, people in a way that was shocking. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, SWAPA is, is being very out front in saying, you know, follow our instructions, don't do things, don't discuss illegal job actions. I know a lot of people think that there's a tongue-in-cheek approval uh, to do things like that, and that's the fear that most of us have is that, somebody's going to start a movement like that, or they're going to say something and then it's going to get picked up. And, and we don't want our pilots to get themselves in trouble. We don't want uh, to impact the security of our pilots and their families by, you know, engaging in anything like that. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Mike. And, and not only the security of our pilots and their families, but also the security of uh, the association itself. Um, the court could impose very hefty fines upon the association and uh, cause financial damage, which would limit our ability uh, to do our jobs here at SWAPA. My question is, did they end up bringing all of those people back? They did. That was part of our return to work agreement. Uh, when we finally did ratify uh, a contract offer, that was part of it, that they had to bring all those, uh, all the terminated pilots back. So those 89 days that, uh, that you were on strike, what, um, I've heard this story before, but, but tell our listeners a little bit what that was like. It was a roller coaster. It was an absolute roller coaster. Uh, good days and bad. And uh, yeah, I would wake up each morning, go pick it for a couple hours, and then I ended up picking up a part-time job. Uh, and uh, I could get into that if you'd like. But uh, so pick it by morning, work a job by the afternoon, come back and and try to uh, socialize with some of your your colleagues for a little boost in moral support, and start all over again the next day. Lather, rinse, repeat. And your second job was? Well, it's funny. Um, in college, I was a bus driver. So I got through school and I still have a commercial driver's license. So the part-time job I picked up was as a bus driver. And I was shocked when I showed up for the first day of work. And what they wanted me to do is drive the company's customers to a nearby destination. It was like Cincinnati to Lexington, Kentucky, I believe. And I handed them the paperwork back and told them I quit. I couldn't do it. I wasn't gonna participate in any activity that would uh, basically <laughs> undermine the strike. So the company was understanding about that. They said, hey, well, we've got other vehicles. We've got limousines and, and vans. We don't have to carry these customers. And uh, unbeknownst to me, they also had the crew contracts for transporting most of the airline crew in Cincinnati to the hotels. So I ended up being the hotel van driver for all the other airline crews coming in and out. 
during that strike. So, so you were transporting crews and you're a pilot at that time. That must have been difficult for you in some ways, but also were there any positives that came out of that? Yeah, it was definitely, uh, like I mentioned, the whole strike was a roller coaster. And uh, some of those trips in the van were uh, roller coaster-ish as well. Um, there, were, Most of the time, I never let on that I was striking pilot and I just took care of the customers, the crew. And occasionally, though, if I heard the, uh, the crews on board the van talking about the strike, uh, occasionally I would chime in or correct some misinformation. And uh, I was left, really, there was one very impactful day. Um, I had a, uh, it, was, it was funny, I had a van, but I only had to pick up one pilot. And it was a Delta MD-11 captain. And he was a really pleasant guy and just started a conversation and saw our entire fleet parked there. And so he struck up a conversation about uh, the strike and and the impact on the city and what I thought of it. And so I volunteered that I was a striking pilot myself. And we talked about some of the issues that we were on strike over. And so Again, the company I worked for had the contracts for all the crews at the time that serviced Cincinnati. And as we pulled up to the downtown hotel that pretty much every airline stayed at, um, we, we said our goodbyes and he had rolled up a dollar bill to give me as my tip and uh, wished him a good night and got back in the driver's seat of my van and I unrolled the dollar and realized that he had actually rolled up a couple hundred dollar bills inside the dollar. And so I went in the lobby of the hotel uh, to, to, to refuse it. I mean, I didn't feel right taking it. And at this point, two of, there were two other company vehicles that had unloaded full crews. And as I tried giving the money back to this, uh, to this, this Delta captain, he not only refused to take it, but he uh, basically uh, got on the pulpit in front of all these other airline crews and explained that not only must I take that money? But it was not just for me. It was for the good of the profession, the good of all of us. And as he was talking to me, someone had taken off their uniform hat and passed I passed it around amongst all these crews. It still chokes me up to this day. And when they get, the hat got back to me, there were hundreds of dollars in there. I mean, really amazing. And uh, I, I got to say that without choking up. I have But, uh, um, yeah, it was really, really pretty impactful and really a great display of, you know, unity in the profession. It was amazing. And still, as you can tell, still, still chokes me up to this day. I, I think that story hits home for so many people. And you and I were talking to new hires a few days back and they, they're all here for their new hire, uh, dinner, brunch, uh, depending on which time of day they, they came here. And we talked to them about the the culture of our pilots and and how pilot culture is is really what will always be here for them and regardless of what they're seeing at the company and the fact that we're going through all this that's part one you you may not know it but you signed up to be a part of this fraternity to be a part of a, a union a group of people that that will take care of you and will will reach out and, and and make sure that you have that future but the other thing uh, like what you said is the generosity and that's something that I've witnessed countless times here from our pilots, uh, from a guy's house burning down while he was away at his, you know, at a, at a family member's funeral, uh, to meal, you know, meal trains for yeah. people who are dealing with cancers and things like that. I mean, just, I mean, all of us, 
I, I've seen, and, and I think our staff has seen it. I know I've seen it with our line pilots. Um, I lost a classmate and a good friend from a former airline all in a matter of two days, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And to see the outpouring of support from uh, this pilot group, and 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 it's it's industry wide. I think pilots are very generous people. Yeah, I, I don't disagree, and I think especially here at Southwest, I've always been impressed with the generosity of our pilots. You know, even though you know you, you can throw out all the cheap tipping jokes, uh, you know, you want at the restaurant when push comes to shove, when someone's in trouble, our pilots routinely do step up for each other and not just for each other, but also for our other employees around us. Given what you just shared with us and that that's a very emotional thing. And I think there's a lot of fear in, in our pilot group surrounding, man, will this really happen? I mean, anyone who is here for the, the Christmas meltdown saw what happens with this company just for a couple of days and to, to go out 89 days on a strike. That's, that's, that's a lot for people to consider. My question to you is, if you had to go through all of that all over again, how would you have prepared yourself, your family for that event? You know, luckily the union did a good job there preparing us well ahead of time. Um, you know, none of us were <laughs> overly well compensated there. And uh, so they prepared us well, reminding us for years, don't, uh, don't make purchases you don't need to be making right now save up, build that strike fund. And that comfort of that money in the bank is what's going to get you through the, uh, the adversity. So, um, so I, I was lucky. I did a good job preparing. I squirreled away a lot of money. Uh, of course it also helped. I did not have children at the time. Um, so I had less, uh, less to worry about, but, uh, even now I would just say just save your money. Don't be making extravagant purchases that you don't need. So Seth, strike is a very scary word for a lot of people. It was obviously scary for you at the time. And you had a lot of things that happened uh, during that time. But tell me, what would you say are some of the positives that came from that period? Well, we definitely secured some of the contractual improvements we were looking for. Um, specifically uh, a B fund type retirement and NEC that we did not have before. And we also got new language, which stopped some of the most egregious scheduling abuses. Um, and uh, I, it's been so long, I don't recall many of the other specifics, but we definitely made much better progress towards uh, an industry leading contract uh, that that pilot group deserved. So uh, we did achieve those, many of those goals. What would you say were some positive outcomes for you personally? You know, I guess just a reminder that flying is not your identity. You know, that was a real struggle for a lot of uh, the pilots initially, because for so many of us, we've worked so hard to get into these jobs. Um, some guys, you know, it's tied to their identity. I mean, if your email address contains the words 737 or jet pilot, blah, 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 at whatever.com, uh, I'm looking at you and... You know, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. I'm not judging, um, but I, I just point that out just as a reminder to people that that's not your whole identity. You're a person. You know, maybe you're a parent, maybe you know, a sibling. Uh, you, you, there's so much more that defines you than just this job as an airline pilot. And so that period was a great reminder to me that there there's more to life than just than this job than flying the line. What responsibility do you think we have? I, I mean, you said you know, it's more than our identity, but what 
could you expand some maybe, especially for pilots who, you know, I, I don't know about what, how long it took you to get here, but it took me over a decade to get here and, and, you know, qualifying for food stamps and, and, and really not making a lot of money. What do you think a pilot's responsibility is to other pilots in making good choices on the SAV vote and to actually hold the line on a strike? I guess I think back to that that moving moment in that hotel lobby back in Cincinnati where that Delta captain insisted on putting hundreds of dollars in my hand and, and, and soliciting contributions from the rest of the crew members around. Um, we all have a responsibility to build a profession, um, not just as you know, not not just as Southwest Airlines pilots, but as pilots in the industry. Um, we all need to jack up our corner of the house, make it better uh, for those that come behind us. I know that's a personal goal of yours as sort of the future of the pilot profession. Would you say that these things are important in securing the future for your children, for other future aviators that are maybe just starting out? Without a doubt. I've got teenage boys. I'm teaching them both uh, how to fly. And I want to make sure that when they have their turn flying the line, that unlike what myself and other Southwest Airlines pilots face of not being able to tell your family when you're coming home. I want them to have contractual language, uh, whether they work at Southwest Airlines or they work somewhere else someday, I want them to have language that protects them. And so they can actually tell their family, hey, barring any storms or unusual IROP, I'll be home on, on this day. So I, I would say tie those two things together for our listeners, because because I think a lot of them would would say, you know, I do want these things, but I don't under, I don't understand what holding the line or voting yes on an SAV. How how does that, in your mind, further that? You know, all these uh, contractual provisions that we enjoy, none of them were just given; they all had to be bargained for. And this is this SAV vote is just is part of that process. It's unfortunate that we're here. But we are right, wrong or indifferent. This is where we are. And the path forward is the correct vote, the yes vote on this SAV to further the process and get us those improvements for both ourselves, our families and the future generations of pilots that come after us. Seth, just say I'm a no voter and I've heard everything from this company's been so good to me to it's against my religious beliefs. I'm voting no. What's your best argument to change my mind? I would say even if you have some personal conviction that doesn't allow you to vote yes, I would say think about the rest of the group and I'd probably ask you to abstain from voting altogether to make sure that yes, SAV vote is a good, strong showing. We need it. Our pilots need it. Our families need it. And those that come after us need it. My final question to you, Seth, is would you be voting yes to the SAV this time? Absolutely. And why would you not vote yes? I can't come up with a good reason not to vote yes. Uh, basically, a no vote to the strike authorization uh, vote is basically a, a no vote on better, clearer language. A no vote is no to better benefits and better disability plans. Um, a yes vote is the right way to continue along this process to get us the contract we need. And do you believe that in the room this will have an, an impact in terms of moving the needle and, and getting us where we want to go? I do. Thank you to Seth for taking the time to talk with us today. We really do appreciate your valuable knowledge and you sharing your story with us. Please remember that we want to hear from you. If you have any feedback, please drop us a line at com at swapa.org. 
Finally, today's bonus number is six. That's the number of pilots at Comair who voted no on the SAV, as Seth pointed out earlier. While that number seems like a very small number, it is that type of participation needed here at SWAPA to move the needle and finally get the contract you deserve. Thank you, Southwest 1223, clear to land.